0: Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Inc. I am Dr. Bill Kanaski here with my very good friend. And this is a repeat guest. I'm to have repeat guests, kind of like you know, Johnny Carson's show when you had like the repeat guests, right? The only, only the good ones come back, Mr. Tim Christ from Texas. How are you doing, Tim? <laughs>
1: I'm good, Bill. Appreciate you having me back. Although I would say it's probably more like I'm just playing like a bad pity, right? I keep turning up.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. We only have the good ones. We only have the good ones back on. But and it's very timely because since you've been on the first a lot's changed. I mean, things are changing by the by the week, if not, if not, if not by the day. Um Tim, start start by telling me about um Claymatic. Tell me about the company. Tell me what you guys focus on. And really, really, what your main push is right now?
1: Sure. So, climatic is a still an insure tech uh, startup software company. Okay. Um, we were actually born out of an independent adjusting firm. So, we think about an IA firm. Their big issue, or one of their big issues, is when a cat hits, you know, like Hurricane Harvey in Houston, they get four thousand claims from like a USA or, or you know Allstate or whoever, and they've got to immediately grab all those claims and assign them to people in the field. And so there's just a lot of logistical nightmares to that. And so part of the secret sauce that the, uh, our architect built was an algorithm that takes all the decisions that you make when you have to do all that. So you think about, oh, hey, Tim and Bill are licensed in Texas. Tim and Bill are flood certified or wind certified. Tim and Bill have a certain amount of estimating authority. Tim and Bill's physical location is whatever it is, right, because we we'll have GPS on our phones, Tim and Bill have been assigned 25 claims already this week, or they haven't been assigned any, or whatever their thresholds are. And are is one of them going on PTO next week, or you know, are they gonna be working, that kind of thing? So there's a couple of dozen questions that you ask from a, from a management perspective of who can I assign claims to? And so simply built a, a you know an algorithm that takes all that into consideration. And so, of course, when the IA firm showed it to one of their carrier clients, the carrier said, hey, I like that little piece of technology, can I have it? So that was the genesis of how Playmatic was born. Um, and so we're you know we're in play with a number of carriers these days. Hippo Insurance is a very public client of ours, and they've said that our tool is, has been amazing. It's helped them you know dramatically reduce their time at FNOL, which is first notice of loss when people are calling in and providing information. Helps better get their adjusters assigned more quickly, um, and then helps with a lot of downstream effects as well. So when you think about it from a from a customer experience perspective, it's really frictional. If you call in, talk to a call center. Then you get a phone call from Bill, and then three days later you get a phone call from Tim, and Tim says, "Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Bill's not going to work the well anymore. He's too busy. I've got to take over." So, we you can assign the right resource the first time, it's just a better customer experience, and there's less, you know, overhead and less, you know, less waste and things of that nature. So, um, helping insurance companies speed up their claims process is what we're hyper focused on doing. Uh, providing better customer experience, lowering, you know, operational costs, improving profitability, all those important things in business,
0: right? very exciting stuff. Now, do, do me a favor, walk us through the what I'll call the evolution of the claims process. D- tell me where it was, tell me where it's at right now, and tell me where this where is this train going?
1: No, that's a good question. So, 20 years ago, um, I got on State Farm's vendor list for firework. And they said, "Tim, you're going to get every eighth claim because we have a round robin claim assignment process." And so there, you know, an insured would call in, say I had a fire, they would talk to the call center, the call center would send it over to the claim uh, department, the claim department would assign it out to whichever team lead that would have it, and that team lead would say, Okay, well, this is a San Antonio claim, so it's got to go to my San Antonio manager. Then the San Antonio manager would say, Okay, well, this is out in, in Fair Oaks, you know, which is northwest, which is kind of you know John's territory, and let's make sure that John's got enough capacity, or if he hasn't been overloaded, then I've got to sign Susie. And it was a very, very manual process 20 years ago to kind of do all this. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of carriers, you know, still do a lot of that same process today. So it has improved to some extent, but this definitely hasn't improved a whole lot. Um, What we've seen, you know, with claims in general is there's now an increased focus on digitizing the claim experience. So at Mm -hmm. least going to a paperless environment, right? Obviously we've been in COVID now for the last year. So it used to be that you know the claim department would have twenty five or twenty five hundred people in it, but now everybody's got to work remote, um, and so they've been able. Most people have been able to do that with, you know, some level of, of you know interruption to their to their normal workflow. But you know, it's but the other thing with COVID it hasn't explained to us yet is we were we've been in a severely depressed claim uh, frequency environment except for the tax storms we've had. So yeah, we've had an artificially low number. of of claims we've had to manage. So, I don't think we've got a true measure of can we be efficient in a work from home environment yet because we haven't seen a normal block. So, I think that still has yet to play out. And frankly, I think it's not going to matter because I think we're going to probably end up back in the office before, um, you know, obviously before claim counts come back to normal anyway. But so that's kind of where we were very manual, very, you know, the adjuster was really the central. Person in that claims process, he was the guy that basically took all the disparate data. He was physically inputting the data into you know, whatever claim system they use, and then managing that process through, and then pulling in additional resources as needed. It's gotten a little bit better with some technology. So now you know, you can get on your app and file a claim. You don't actually have to fax in a notice or things of wow. like that right. I mean, um, but uh, there's still some you know, there's still some challenges at, at the front end of that, and on the back side of that, you know, there's still people that. Want to issue paper checks, or you know, hey, if you've got a mortgage on your house and they issue you a check, it's endorsed to your mortgage company as well, which means you get your check in the mail, then you have to mail it to your mortgage company to endorse it, then they mail it back to you. And so, there's you know, still some very manual processes at play there. Where I think it's going, and I talk about this a lot in a presentation I've been giving around the country to a bunch of CPCU chapters, is you know, the insurance companies are starting to understand that. When you have a claim experience you have really two options as a result of that claim experience if you have a good claim experience you stay a customer and you become much more valuable to that carrier because now you're stickier.
0: yeah
1: but it's about a 50 50 shot the other 50 percent is they don't like the experience that they leave so what they're starting to focus in on is okay so if we can improve claim experience we can reduce policy churn we can improve you know customer nps scores we can improve the stories that you know result in the, the neighborhood grapevine effect of, of how we treat people. And so part of that is with technology, because it's, it's really, you know, for a variety of regulatory reasons, you know, the insurance companies have developed a claim process that complies with all the regulatory requirements. But when you have a claim, like I had a claim, uh, we had a, a water softener uh, burst in our, in our garage. So we came home, there's water running out of our garage. So <laughs> Of course, me, the forensic engineer guy goes, okay, I'm gonna go figure out what what broke, right? And it ended up being a little PVC fitting that had fractured and burst, which is why um, the water was running everywhere. But the garage was the adjacent room to our baby's room. So my wife is dealing Mm -hmm. with the whole emotional piece of it, right? Uh, So, oh my God, the baby's carpet is wet. And the sheetrock's all damaged and we got to cut it all out and everything. So, (laughs) So that was just, but you know, so what happens is I, you know, we got home, we had that claim. Well, I've now signed as an insured. I've signed up for a 16-step process, at least 16 steps, if not more, to now manage to get my house back together that I had never even knew existed. And by the way, I now actually know really, really well what my policy covers and doesn't cover. And I recognize that you know that one percent deductible, which just people talk about on the front end, is actually three or four thousand dollars out of my own pocket <laughs> in order to you know in yeah. order to cover the uh, cover the loss. Thankfully, in my case, because it was a fractured fitting there was a subrogation opportunity. So we actually got the plumber who had installed the system about three weeks prior wow. to agree that it was their fault. Um, and so it was covered under their CGL policy. So I didn't have a, I didn't have a dollar out of pocket, but had I not been proactive in sweeping up the water and gathering up all those pieces of plastic that had burst everywhere we had, we'd never have known. right? Um, and so that's what happens on a, on a day-to-day basis. And so I think where we're going is we're going to start to leverage technology to Better manage that experience because there's certain things like if I call in the insurance company, you should know my policy number, you should know my phone number, you should be able to say, Hi Tim, how are you doing today, and not have you make me go through a 17 question, you know, identification process. Yeah, I hate that. Um, and then you should be able to counsel me on whatever information I need to know, right? And so, you've got to provide the right data at the right point in time to to these folks, um, and also be able to, you know, just keep us apprised of things. I mean, you know, you and I've been. We've been text messaging for, what, 15, 16 years now? Insurance companies have just now, in the last two or three years, been able to text message. People.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So, it, you know, it's, it's <laughs> basic stuff, right? And like I said, we're still issuing paper checks. Um, yeah. And, then, you know, I mean, I, I can get on Venmo and pay anybody in the world, you know, in three minutes, but it takes 15 days for a check to get mail for my insurance stuff. <laughs> so it's just a lot of that basic digitization process that they're trying to improve on. But then you also start to figure out, well, You know, there's areas where you can actually really delight your customer. Like, you know, lemonade is a great example. So if you have a renter's policy and somebody breaks into your apartment, steals your TV, you can get on their app, you know, file a claim, take a picture of where the TV was. It shows the wires hanging out, you know, like somebody ripped the TV off the wall. And as long as, you know, you, you know, as long as basically you check that you're a low fraud risk and you don't have any issues with your credit or, you know, some other things that they obviously check in the background, the algorithm processes it and you get a check in three seconds or a direct payment, you know, three seconds for 300 bucks for your TV or whatever it is. So that's frictionless, right? And that's from an insurance perspective, that's a really great experience. And so insurance companies are really looking at what they call touchless claims is really the way, that's the holy grail. That's where they would like to get to is if we can, if we can engineer out fraud risk at the beginning, we can straight through pay claims. But the problem we have is, you know, I mean, you get involved in nuclear verdicts and juries and whatnot. The problem we have is when we have disputes over the amount of loss or even causation or other issues, then it gets murky and then we don't have the opportunity to, to, to create a straight through process, right? So we've still got to have other, other manners in which we can adjudicate a, a claim, but we're gonna, we're gonna bucketize everything going forward. We're gonna say, okay, this group of claims, which are very, very common, very, very simple, we're gonna straight through process. These bucket claims are complex. they are still gonna have to go through a traditional process. But we're going to figure out little slivers of those that we can do faster to compress the timeline. Because even for litigation, you know, if if I can if I can pay somebody for a claim, even if I can pay a claimant for a claim in ten days, the likelihood of them going to litigation because they're now screwing around with me for six months is greatly reduced, right? So then I save all of that legal expense on the back end. So anything that I can do to compress the time frame is game on. And and we recognize we're starting to do ROI calculations where what is the cost per hour of that claim? And so I'm actually willing to overpay people in certain cases just to make it go away because I recognize the net benefit on the savings, net, net. Um, And so we're starting to, as opposed to it used to be, we didn't want to pay more than what we owed, right? But we're starting to realize the business impact long-term of that. And we're starting to factor that into our discussions.
0: That's, well, that's incredible and actually very wise because uh, most, I think for the, the most part, the insurance industry has been really slow to come around on that, meaning maybe investing and paying money early to save money on the back end. That's a concept that they've struggled with for a long time. And uh, I think it's more probably psychological uh, in nature of if I spend money up front, like I'm doing something wrong. But when you look, you zoom out, you look at the big picture, oftentimes it's the it's the best decision in the long one, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think,
1: yeah, there's a there's a cultural aspect of it, but there's also, you know, a regulatory piece too, right? I mean, yeah. so that's that's what the parts you can't get away from on the on the carrier side. Um but <clears throat> yeah, I mean absolutely you need to look at the at the big picture. But even historically underwriting and claims really haven't ever talked to each other. So even yeah. You know, even basic stuff like getting 100,000 data points of, of the you know claims that you processed last year and being able to give that back to your underwriting department to say, here's the 80 20 rule, right? Here's the 20% of the claims that resulted in 80% of the payments. And if we'd have done XYZ differently, we would save 25% or whatever the number is. Even basic stuff like that hasn't happened a lot. And so we're just now, you know, obviously with cloud technology and, and, and big data availability, we're just now starting to get to the point where. You can accumulate all those disparate data points together, but you know I'll give you the example. So my firm, we were in a totally serverless environment, right? We were virtualized for from 2005 on. So we had four physical servers, two in Chicago, two in Columbus, that were you know one was primary and one was a failed the rollover, right? And so if Columbus or Chicago lost power, we rolled over to Columbus and vice versa. Yeah, but but none of the other servers existed; they were all in the cloud. Well, that was 2005. Well, insurance companies, a major claims management platform that exists today, has just now released their cloud version in 2020. (laughs) So they're 15 years behind on adopting cloud technologies and ability and flexibility, if you will, versus a lot of us in private business that, like I said, we've been doing for well over a decade. So you can imagine, you know, because technology continues to evolve and increase in, in velocity, If if we're 15 years behind on that, what are we also now missing out on? And text messaging is just another very simple example.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a really uh, good point. They've been uh, late to the party, if you know what I mean. Um, So with more technology, creates, seems like a lot of efficiencies and hopefully um, cost savings. What do you think the risks are? Because I think with any technology, you, there's going to be positives, but then sometimes you create new problems. I mean, is it is it like cybersecurity things like that? Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. There's a number of concerns, right? I mean, CNA just got hacked um, yeah. here in the last month, right? And that was a huge issue um, that's still probably, frankly, going on. Um, the The other, you know, the other concern you have is, you know, anytime you adopt a, a cool new piece of tech. If, if there's any aspect of it that has a direct impact to your client, like you've gotta be very, very careful with how that gets rolled out, right? Because if it's mm-hmm. negative or frictional or whatever, for any reason, I mean, you can immediately lose 10, 15, 20% of your business. I mean, we've got a client that they were actually, they had a, a technical challenge last year with COVID. And so they were sort of offline for a month and a half, but they literally lost 25 and a half percent of their business. Wow. Because That's- of that, right? Yeah, no, I mean, so that, I mean, that just, uh, that's direct bottom line profitability and and everything else, right? So, so it's just a, there's a lot of care and consideration and strategic discussions that got to go on uh, related to tech rollouts. But yeah, cybersecurity is a big issue, you know, from a regulatory perspective is even allowed. I mean, there's a lot of things going on regulatory wise. I mean, the Washington insurance commissioner has now said that we're not going to allow credit scores for rating purposes. Um, And so that's, you know, got the whole, you know, industry up in arms telematics is able to be used everywhere, except for California and Florida, interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, so we've still got some, you know, some inconsistencies there. So there, you know, and then, you know, when we talk about IOT and the commercial application, I'd actually written an article about this a few weeks ago for PC 360, because there's an anti-rebating clause. There's a concern that, well, we can't induce an insurer to, you know, to give them a piece of, you know, equipment that's gonna help save them money because that's an inducement to purchase coverage. So that's not allowed under the law. But how can how can we functionally allow an insured to use this device that's going to reduce the frequency and severity of their of their losses, and also, frankly, save us money in the end of the day, right? So it's a win-win. But we haven't figured out the right mechanism in which the, uh, the that process can be can be managed in order to, to help them, you know, initiate that process. It doesn't really exist on the on the home personal side because Hippo Insurance is a great example. If you sign up with Hippo, they send you a little smart home kit. So you install those little sensors, one on your front door, one on your back door. The smoke a sensor in the kitchen and then a water softener or a water sensor by your washing machine and by your water heater. And so it tells you whether your doors are locked or open or shut. It tells you whether there's smoke in the kitchen. It tells you whether there's any water on the floor. And so basically it's simply an early warning device. But HIPAA will yeah. tell you, you'll get a 25% discount over a typical policy by just using their equipment. And wow. so when you think about that across the spectrum, I mean, you know, basic stuff, if we can have, you know, security you know, protocols in place like with the ring doorbells and whatnot that almost everybody has between between theft or break-in, if we have fire risk-produced, if we have water mitigation um, taken care of. I mean, my our home, the, the local utility actually reads our meter four times an hour. They're all, it's all digital and, and cloud-enabled. And so I, I've got a dashboard I can look at and see exactly what my water usage is on an hourly, daily, weekly, monthly basis. And so I can see it across the pattern, right? So I see, you know, Wednesday through Monday, it's pretty static. It's 250 gallons or less, but on Tuesdays, which is when we're allowed the water, it spikes up to 900 gallons or whatever. But whenever it varies from that, I, I obviously then I would have a leak, right? So I, I've already set threshold triggers where if it exceeds a certain amount in, in a particular time frame, then I get a, a notification. And so all of those things, you know, exist to help the fact that we're, you know, likely it will reduce a loss um, in the event that there's one. And so when you think about the you know that downstream. Well, then that takes care of a lot of premium concerns, it takes care of a lot of claim concerns, and then um, you know just spills over into that. But I think there's a lot of applicability yet that we have yet to take advantage of. You
0: remember the movie Back to the Future? All that, oh, yeah. all that, all that stuff's coming true. Unfortunately, all the stuff from the Terminator movie, I think, is also coming true. Thirty years later, um, I'm. My, my, my favorite
1: show was Knight Rider. So today we can't talk to our watches, yeah, and we can't talk to our car. It's they it's only took um, forty
0: years. Yeah, it took forty years. Um, it's absolutely frightening. It's frightening on some level too. Let's talk. Let's talk um, some litigation specifics. Um, sure. We've all been forced into Zoom world, or WebEx world, or Teams world, whatever you want go to meeting world. Um, it's probably saved my career <laughs> because I mean, without it, the last year would have been. Very difficult. Well, what are you hearing out there? Of people's experiences with using Zoom, you know, as part of the 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 the, the litigation process, and does some of this stick going forward? Because I have my thoughts about this, but I'd like to hear what you think about it.
1: Yeah, no, I I talk to a lot of lawyers um, and judges and and other folks on a pretty routine basis, and it's a It's a mixed bag, but it depends on what function you're talking about, right? So, what I will tell you is that without a doubt, certain depots, like we'll probably always do via Zoom, like especially if they're, you know, if they're sort of peripheral depots and they're not, you know, they're not critical mission critical ones. Um, I think, frankly, 90% of hearings can be adjudicated via Zoom because then it's right very factual based, very law based. It's just the lawyers and the judge. There's no emotion, you know, meant to be, you know, in connotation there. And so it should just be a conversation about is this correct or procedural or is that correct procedurally and make a decision, judge, and go on. Um, Plus, not to, you know, not to even factor in all the time savings and the cost savings right of having to fly across the country for that same stupid hearing um, to get the same, you know, similar type results you can get uh, if you're, you know, just via Zoom. That being said, my criminal lawyer buddies tell me that, they're having a real hard time because people that are sitting there pajamas as jurors at home are convicting the heck out of them. Wow. There's no emotional connection to that defendant. Yeah. And so they're just like, oh, yep, he's guilty. Done. See you. Bye.
0: Yeah, that's um, yeah, that it's difficult. I, I think um, where a lot of this is going to stick, like you said, it eliminates a lot of time and travel um, for some of the basic things, particularly maybe some you know basic um, depositions, um, attorneys told me that they love to do the, the court hearings by zoom, because it's like, you know, I, otherwise I'm sitting an hour in traffic, I'm doing my job for an hour another hour back in, tra- it's a three hour process for something that takes, you know, 30 minutes and it's created a lot of efficiencies. And, uh, I think a lot of the judges, uh, are okay with it. I think some of the zoom trials, um. And from what I'm hearing have been somewhat disastrous because you're right. Even in civil litigation, too. Um, you know, the the guy sitting in his boxer shorts and, and wife beater tank top with beer stains shoving a a hot pocket into his mouth. How can that person really be paying attention to what's going on? And then again, it's like the, even I I would say in civil litigation too, there is a human connection there as well. And mm-hmm. And, and I think that it's, um, I'm not sure that part of it's going to stick. I think the court system's going to figure I mean, hey, I was on an airplane last week, Tim, 225 people shoulder to shoulder wearing masks on a five hour. You're telling me you can't do that in a courtroom, right? I mean,
1: yeah.
0: so, <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Well, this has been great stuff. Let's wrap up with a, a topic that I see is going to be uh, highly controversial in the next six months is um, as places start to open back up, you know, what are employers going to do with um, commutes versus you know versus work from home? Is there going to be some, you know some um, um, hybrid model um, going on? I think for some people and in industries, um, the work from home thing's been fantastic. I think for some people in industries, it's been a disaster. Um, going, going forward, where, where, where do you see that going? Because again, like with anything else, technology can create some great things, but it also creates a new set of problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a real mixed bag too. Um, you know, it's, it's, It hasn't been talked about a lot, but it's interesting when I talk to folks. And So I've talked to companies in, there's a company here in San Antonio, that they've had 100% of their workforce back in the office since May 11th of last year, 100%. Wow. The only thing they did was they, they have a dining room because they got about 2,000 people on campus. Um, and so they brought a food truck into the Cor- mm-hmm. ricochet out front and basically created another, another little you know, dining area. And they've set up a couple of little sandwich stations and other places that they're building to spread people out around the, the, around the food piece. But they've been 100% back since May 11th. Um, talked to a company in, in, in Indiana, same thing. They've been back since like middle of April last year. Uh, talked to a California based company, which I thought was really interesting. Um, they've actually been back already since December. And so um, I think everybody's approaching it a little differently. You know, the main concern I've heard, and it obviously it varies depending on the type of company, but if you have a very young workforce, then there is a real training mentoring aspect that, you know, is very much better facilitated in a, you know, office environment. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, personally, we experienced the exact same thing. So in March, when our son was sent home from school and my wife was sent, you know, kicked out of the office too for a little bit. So she took over my office. So I took over the dining room table. <laughs> yep. But then my son was there at the dining room table with me. So it was a train wreck for me to try to get anything done, right? With him right there. But now that he's back in school, in real school, um, in person, and my wife goes back to the office, I mean, I've got the entire house to myself and I, I've got an office too in town, but I can work from the house just as easily. So I think everybody's gonna, you know, that, you know, that work-life balance is going to be a little different for everybody, depending on their situation, um, and it'll be interesting to see how what culturally companies choose to, to do with that going forward.
0: Yeah, because I think we're going down this rabbit hole of okay, we've created this you know this uh, easier way to work. We've taken out a lot of um, some would argue unnecessary you know travel time, uh, commute time, um, but things like leadership camaraderie, <laughs> supervision, <laughs> training, mentoring, you know, I, I think, you know, does that suffer going forward? I don't, I don't know the answers to these questions, but I know like for example, a lot of law firms um, I think are going to probably adopt some hybrid model to where you know, most of the administration staff can can work from home. And I just, it, it makes you wonder how it's gonna impact the litigation process as a whole. I don't know. We'll yeah, see. I mean, I think
1: you know, it uh, it remains to be seen, but I think a lot of folks, you know, between the the fact that the offices have been empty, they're looking at real estate downsizing. What that cost is of that, you know, overhead, you know, Class A office space, top floor, yeah, some law firms have had forever, or you know, downtown Houston or downtown Orlando, you know, that's super expensive. Do we need 15 floors of lawyers, you know, all there together, or yeah, or can we do it all, you know, or some of it virtually, right? I mean, I I remember you know, it's been interesting to see the evolution. I mean, AIG, when i go visit them in New York, used to have three buildings in Manhattan. Then they went to two buildings in Manhattan Then they went to one building in Manhattan and they had two buildings in Jersey city. That's exactly right. And, they, and, they kept, and then they decided to go to hoteling where okay. now you would come into the office one or two days a week. Right. But it was more of just a, a little, you know, uh posted thing where you could sit down and plug into, as opposed to everybody having their own office space and whatnot. So that's been it's been a trend that's been you know, continuing for a while but uh, but yeah we definitely saw a whole whole different level of it in the last you know 13
0: 14 months absolutely well listen tim great having you on the podcast again as usual uh keep us updated on how technology is going to be impacting the claims process going forward i'm sure we'll have you on again for 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 updates as as things go on and uh Best wishes to you. Stay safe out there. But again, thank you very much for, for sharing your wisdom on this important topic.
1: No, I appreciate you, Bill. And obviously always a big fan of yours and courtroom sciences. You guys do an incredible job. So keep up the good work.
0: Thank you very much. And to our audience members, thank you so much again for participating in the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by courtroom sciences. I'm Bill Kanaski. We will see you next time.